Transportation is a journey connecting us in our everyday lives. This podcast series, TRB's Transportation Explorers, takes you on that journey with meaningful conversations with the experts behind the research. They often have an early eye on how we'll build the transportation of tomorrow. Hi, I'm Elaine Farrell. And I'm Paul Mackey with the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine based in Washington, D.C. On today's podcast, we are speaking with Dr. Sean Wilson, Secretary of the Louisiana Department of Transportation and Development. Dr. Wilson has helmed the LADOTD since 2016, although he has been with the organization for more than 15 years. Sean has a BA in Urban and Regional Planning from the University of Louisiana and a Master's and PhD in Public Policy from Southern University. He was recently involved in a report about building transportation resilience. Dr. Sean Wilson, we are so glad to have you here for TRB's Transportation Explorers podcast. As you know, the Transportation Research Board just released a great new report. It's called Investing in Transportation Resilience, a Framework for Informed Choices. And it lists five recommendations for how transportation agencies can invest in resilience. Uh, You were on the panel for this report, so you probably know it well, I'm guessing. Tell our listeners what transportation resilience actually is. What are we talking about with that? And what were at least some of the panel's recommendations? You know, it's a great question. Resilience can take on many different meanings depending on your industry or the genre of work that you do. But for transportation, uh, we had a really exciting and interesting dialogue and discussion putting the project together and doing the research. Many more people worked harder than I did on it being an executive of a transportation agency. But they were very interested in real practical assumptions and practical things that can be done. To best summarize what resilience is from an infrastructure or transportation perspective, it's really having the institutional capacity or ability to return back to the original purpose of which infrastructure was intended following some natural or man-made disruption. You know, resilience is bouncing back, but not just bouncing back to the way you were before, but perhaps finding Uh, an opportunity to be stronger, to be more efficient, to be better, to be more preventive from succumbing to that natural disaster or similar disasters going forward. You know, you think about storms for infrastructure, floods, hurricanes, wildfires, for example, all of those things could be recurring. Just in 2020, we spent over $20 billion on responding to natural disasters. Here in Louisiana, we had five named storms, Uh, One community, Lake Charles, was hit twice. The reality is, in between those two events, we couldn't make our roads more hardened or elevated in a short time. So strategically, we have to think about how do we use our limited resources to be more responsive going forward, and that is preventing that disruption from the very beginning. And so that's, that's how I describe it, is being able to bounce back and having the institutional capacity, and that's important. That's one of the things I think that I was able to bring to the table that the academics and practitioners all agreed, is how do you institutionally do it? Not make it a happenstance, but to be intentional, to be strategic about making investments that have a value-added benefit to its users. And um, so that's what resilience would be for me from a transportation perspective. Some of the things you mentioned, wildfires, floods, all of that, we know that is a result of climate change. What are some of the metrics 
transportation agencies need to have in relation to resilience to climate change and measuring these impacts? So, you know, you make a good question. I will tell you, I probably would say this would vary by the mode of transportation that you're looking at, regardless of the mode. And we can get into some specifics by mode. But first and foremost, are we assessing the probability of an event occurring? Right now, we see rainfall at record numbers uh, of inches per hour much more frequently. I have a saying in my department that things are wetter, weirder, and wilder than ever before. And so we look at the likelihood of a natural disaster occurring, and we try to prepare ourselves for that. We also look at where our system is most vulnerable. Where do we have our greatest weaknesses? We find that a number of roads that we find ourselves dewatering or bridges that are having repeat scour are the same bridges that we had from previous events. And so assessing the vulnerability of assets before an event would occur is super, super important for agencies to consider. And then we also look at the type of damages that we will see. What will that disruption cause? Here in Louisiana, I've closed every interstate as a result of a natural disaster, particularly water. And that's a very expensive proposition for us in terms of what's happening to the commercial trucking industry or the rail industry or even the aviation industry when that disruption occurs. And what are those costs that we're attributing to all of the users that can no longer access that particular road? And then last but not least, I think the criticality or the importance of that infrastructure system. I can think back to this record winter storm where we got below freezing for three days in a row here in Louisiana. We were most concerned about access to medical facilities for individuals who might be in need of emergency care because we were in the middle of a pandemic. And so for us, understanding more now the criticality of the road or the importance of that asset in terms of the long-term viability that it offers is super, super important. You know, when you think about the different modes, you have to think about the capacity to be able to travel. What's the delays? What will those delays actually create on other systems if you're thinking about roads? How will you connect to the key corridors for our economy? All of those are metrics that we look at in terms of the downstream and upstream effects of what's going to happen with congestion. Same thing happens on rail. You know, you, can, you can't really get off of the track, bypass an incident area, and get back on a track very easily. So you have to calculate what that effect is for passenger rail as well as industrial rail because goods and services still have to get to their destination. There's a ripple effect. So if you're thinking about trains that are moving coal for energy and they can't get their supply to their facilities, that's going to slow down and have a ripple effect of what's going to happen for communities all across the system. So regardless of mode, I think it's important to go back and compare what are the intended services that are going to be available and offered to citizens, as well as our predictability within that environment during a disaster. Those are all metrics that really matter to us, given the fact that we know we can't control some of the natural disasters that we see, but we have to be prepared to respond to them. You really have uh, have seen some effects of climate change and wild and weird and woolly weather, you know, at, at least since Hurricane Katrina in 2005. There must be, no pun intended, a, a sea change going on in Louisiana. What is Louisiana DOT doing about flooding and the effects of sea level rise? 
Very good question. You know, I would tell you it's much larger than just DOT post-Katrina. We have found and have spent an inordinate amount of resources and effort with the help of our federal partners. And it's important to note that without federal partnerships, a lot of this is not going to necessarily be possible. A big part of what this research document puts out is really providing measurements for the federal government to use to perhaps better allocate resources to address a disparate categorization of types of disasters. But with respect to Louisiana, we've spent a lot of time and effort rebuilding our coastal areas where we're actually going to get the barrier islands that are gonna be super essential in preventing some of the flood that we see in the inland parts of the state. We're spending a little bit more time looking at our rivers and how we dredge. In fact, we've just launched a major watershed initiative that we're going to be spending about $1.2 billion actually modeling all of the different watersheds here in the state and then being able to manage development to understand what are the impacts because this is going to be a cascading effect for Louisiana because water is our biggest threat. It's also our biggest ally because of our economy and the river that runs through this state. And so we spent a lot of time looking at those metrics around how do we do a better job managing our water? Uh, How do we do a better job of dealing with the coastal protection? Because the greatest amount of water is going to be out in the Gulf of Mexico. And we've seen in New Orleans where the presence of that water will kill oak trees because of the salinity of the water in the inland parts of the city. That shouldn't be. And so we've actually built tremendous levee protections pump systems that are remarkable in terms of being able to dewater an environment. But we're also having a conversation about climate change and how do we develop our economy as well as our culture to respond differently. You know, we've been a huge producer of greenhouse gases in the transportation industry and for a fossil fuel state like Louisiana to be talking about electric vehicles and working with all sides of the table to be able to come up with solutions is pretty significant. So those are some things that we're doing here. Within the Department of Transportation, we actually spend a lot more time focused on how do we protect people and how do we evacuate them in a safe harbor way. And we've gotten to be pretty professional at that, not because we just want to be that good, but we've had lots of experience. We spend a lot of time in Louisiana also looking at how do we do a much better job elevating roads and bridges to provide that safe passage during that difficult time. And so we're so grateful that Congress is finally having a conversation about funding resilience across this country. They've done it in a way that allows for disasters and climate change impacts to be dealt with regionally. And so whether it's forest fires, whether it's tornadoes, whether it's hurricanes, whether it's earthquakes, all of those things are really different and it causes a state to have to respond differently. And uh, each state is gonna have to look at that effort and look at those resources to best apply them. Uh, Whatever they do, it's not gonna be enough. And and I think that's where, again, this report uh, was helping provide guidance and recommendations on what is a strategic and thoughtful way to measure the impact of resilience investment? What's the best way to really model the effect of what we've done? How do you appropriate dollars in a way when you've got different types of events and disasters such that agencies could then maximize what's most important to them for their citizens. And and how do you get the best bang for your buck? That's exactly, I think, what this framework uh, that's recommended in this document tries to attempt to do.
how do you, you mentioned going out in the community and I think DOT employees probably are getting more and more talented at multitasking and being able to do different things like talk to the community. How do you get out there and, and message, listen to them with what their needs are, but also message to them that, hey, we've got some fixes we need to make and, and we're going to try to make them. Well, I think it takes a lot of personal touch and a personal effort because you actually have to convince people to leave their homes and leave all of the valuable things that they've amassed and get out of harm's way. You know, I can think about the Ile de Jean Charles community. It's a native community down in South Louisiana that has existed for generations on an island. And everyone in that neighborhood has lost extreme value in their property and they're having to be relocated. So it's a very personal decision to do that. And a part of it is really engaging the citizens on what it is they really want to have, whether it's an elevation, whether it's a relocation, we're providing options for those individuals to be able to find safe harbor and to achieve the American dream, basically, uh, in a way that's not going to be disruptive. It's also a much more financial decision for us because we can go back and say, We've funded renovations, whether it's FEMA dollars or state dollars for efforts and recovery, multiple times to the same families that have rebuilt in the same locations. You know, that's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But to move people to get them motivated to accept that offer takes a lot of time. And I'll be the first to tell you, we're not having all of the success we want, but we're making better decisions not only are we asking those individuals to change their lifestyles, we're making investments in projects that, like the Comey Diversion, for example, which is going to do wonders to move water from a small, low-lying river into the Mississippi north of five or six major cities that have had repeat flooding on a regular basis. That's a major project that we're working on now in the state. You can look at other projects, um, whether it's the, the reservoirs that we've looked at, dry reservoirs, where we've made decisions that we're not going to destroy communities in the name of protecting other communities. And so it's a very difficult process. It's a give and take all throughout. And it's really having a conversation uh, with citizens where they are. You have to explain to them, give them the examples, show them the data as to why what may be happening is not the best solution, and then inspire them to accept something else that you're offering. That's real touching human work, and um, it's transformative when it's successful, and it's quite heartbreaking uh, when it isn't. I can tell you, having been out rescuing individuals and families, when I first became secretary, we rescued a lady and her dog uh, in Hammond, and she had moved to Hammond from Katrina, out of New Orleans. And this was her third time flooding. And she was just physically and mentally and emotionally exhausted, all because of mother nature and things that we can't control. And the part of that conversation was, yeah, we can control some things like where do you resettle? We can control some things like how do you rebuild? Do you need to elevate your home? Those are things that are just basic things that are hard for folks to get, but it's, it's difficult when they don't pick up those lessons. It sounds like even though Louisiana is fairly unique in flooding and where it is regarding their watershed, it sounds like a lot of these lessons can be applied elsewhere, even to states and communities that maybe aren't experiencing as much flooding. So what can other states and regions learn from Louisiana's experience? Well, I think first and foremost, understanding what these risks are to your community is essential. And so we know that hurricanes are probably much more probable here 
than earthquakes. In fact, we have had very mild earthquakes since I've been secretary. We've had lightning storms. We've had winter storms. But the greatest threat to us is really going to be hurricanes and flooding. And so we've taken caution and taken steps to integrate into our regular program ways that we can improve our system. And so the big lesson that I think, regardless of your disaster type, figure out how to use your existing dollars in a smarter way. Figure out how to grow that investment and leverage those dollars. Because if we wait just to fund resilience, it's probably not going to happen in a meaningful way. My budget is close to one and a half billion dollars for construction. And if I never factor in ways to make our infrastructure more resilient, then I'm wasting those dollars to a certain degree. Now, when I get additional resilience dollars, I can be very intentional in that. But you have to take some small steps, integrate that into your regular program. The other piece I think that's important for folks to realize is that resilience is everyone's responsibility from a maintenance perspective to an engineering perspective to construction to financial management. Resilience really does fit in every job description. And so when we have a disaster in Louisiana, we don't let half the department go home and the operations folks get to stay. We actually integrate them into our ESF, our emergency support functions of engineering and public safety and evacuations. It's an all hands on deck approach. And I think that same approach can help other agencies dealing with issues of climate change and natural disasters that they may be seeing as a result of climate change. So what do you what do you say to people who push back saying resilience measures are too expensive? They they're too long term. They're not, we're not going to see results right now or even say, well, climate change isn't really a thing, isn't really that important. So this is not a good use of, of money. First, I tell them, you know, if you do the math, it's more expensive not to do anything. The second thing I tell them is take a look at where we've been, regardless of what the cause is things are different. You know, we have seen weather conditions that was not the norm. We've seen hurricanes get stronger, which has not been the norm. Just think at the beginning of hurricane season, we're now on letter F. And you go back to last year, we exhausted all of the alphabetical names that we identify for hurricanes and then get into the Greek alphabet. That doesn't happen on a regular basis. And so I try to not argue what the cause is, but look at the effects. If you look at sinking properties, if you look at eroding coastal lands, if you look at, you know, dying trees and shrinking forests and canopies, you have to think about there is an effect that is causing that. But let's not debate if it's climate change. Let's debate the impact of what it's going to take. And then you can turn around and look at my budget sheet and say, how much have I spent on evacuations The moment I pull a bus trigger on my contract for bus evacuation, I spent $30 million over the course of that contract for a five-day period. That's assuming we do get everyone out of the way. Those are not the folks who can drive out. It's those folks who don't have any other alternative but to be evacuated. If I have to do that on a regular basis, I'm spending a greater portion of my budget on preparation for disaster, as opposed to actually building infrastructure that's going to prevent such a disaster, which can't be built. So it's a dollars and cents perspective. And then I realize there are going to be some people who are going to be non-believers. And our goal is not to get total agreement on what we want to do. I think the masses and the majority will understand and support that's government's responsibility is to lead the effort 
do what private sectors can't do, but do it in a smart way that's based on research, that's based on a science where we don't reject it or dispute it. But that's the nature of human beings. So there's some people you just throw your hands up just like you do with roads. They just want to argue for the purposes of arguing. I look at what's happening around us and say, I see an impact. I see a difference. And it's incumbent upon me as a public official to best position this department and any other public department to be responsive to that reality. We've been talking about natural disasters, but of course, COVID-19 is also a different type of disaster and we need to be resilient from it. So what is Louisiana DOTD doing to combat COVID-19? And again, what are the lessons that you can impart to other agencies? Interesting question, particularly since we're in the middle of our fourth spike here. We've attempted at DOTD to be responsive to this event, one, by maintaining our necessity of work, but also providing the support structure for all of our employees, uh, one, to become vaccinated, two, to exercise all of the mitigation measures of social distancing where possible, masking where possible, and providing access to good substantive information. We've provided a number of tools, whether it's enhanced cleaning services, uh, voluntary temperature checks, all of those elements that make sense for how we do our work to be able to continue to do our work, I should say, we've been able to do. Likewise, we've not let our foot off the gas in terms of advancing projects and delivering work in a safer way. Unfortunately, like many other places around the country, our numbers from last year from a safety perspective are abysmal when we had fewer cars on the road. We've actually killed more people in this country when we had a lower ADT than we did the year before. The reality that COVID has killed more people than we've ever seen with the flu, I think here in Louisiana, it's 11 times. And so we're actually using our equipment, our information to educate the public about the value of vaccines in terms of saving lives. Controversial? Yes. Meaningful? Absolutely. Because we know 91% of the hospitalizations and deaths right now are unvaccinated. And so we think that our job at DOT is to provide a safe environment, provide accurate information for individuals to make good choices, and then make the policy decisions in our business that's going to be helpful, whether it's the working from home, working in the office, providing different types of physical mitigations. But this is a disaster like many others, except that it's not a physical storm or it's not an earthquake or a fire. And unfortunately, Every state is having to deal with this crisis as well as other types of climate change related crisis. Hurricanes still occurred in the middle of a pandemic, which exacerbated our evacuation. So, for example, we have buses, coach buses that move 52 people. During the pandemic disaster, I could only put 26 people on that bus. As a result, guess what? We have to get more buses, which is going to be more expensive for us to maintain. That's being responsive to. I think this crisis, but also being nimble to what we can do as a department and as a state, because clearly it's a statewide effort and the leadership that the governor gave us allowed flexibility for that type of innovative approach to evacuation and sheltering, as well as repatriation and repopulation of folks and communities. I'm putting you in a scene, maybe in an elevator or maybe at a cocktail party. You got two minutes or less with Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And let's just throw in President Joe Biden. Let's say he's there too. What's one or two things that you'd really like to, to push to them to make happen? 
I don't know that I would recommend much. One, I would applaud them for their efforts to really make infrastructure investment a priority. And they're doing it in a very substantive way, whether it's the secretary's commitment to transit and what that may mean for this country to move masses of people in a more efficient way, or it's the president's vision of making sure that we address equity, fairness, that we address those who are struggling the most in this country with a comprehensive wraparound effort. I applaud them for making the types of investments that are necessary from government, but more importantly, by adding the policy gravitas to it that will make it sustainable. My ask of them is to keep up the good work and to be more articulate about how states and entities could help advance that argument and do it in a way that's continuing to engage people and be sensitive to where they are, because I sense that they understand the unique differences of the Northeast, the Southeast, the Northwest, the South. I will ask for one thing. As you look at discretionary funding, think about rural communities and think about those places that cannot afford to present as competitive of an application, because I think there are tremendous gaps in our system right now in terms of smaller communities being able to compete for rehabilitation of water system or rural transit, public education in some small areas. And they've done a good job about it, but I would just encourage them not to forget about that because that too is integrated with the success of urban communities across this country. Speaking personally, how did you get interested in transportation? You know, I would tell you it was an accident uh, and I'm glad it was an accident. My undergraduate degree was originally nursing My father passed away and I realized I didn't want to be around sickness in my work life and in my personal life. And I needed to find a major that would take advantage of the courses I could take and get me out of school quickly. I got into planning and I realized this was a microcosm of the entire world divided into little small communities. And I stayed in that path and ended up working in national service for then Lieutenant Governor Blanco. She became governor and I worked on transportation policy along with Department of Environmental Quality and Natural Resources. And I moved into the Department of Transportation. And I had the pleasure of working for four years for her Secretary of Transportation as a Chief of Staff. I was kept on in a different administration, which was a different party. And I stayed on for eight years. Worked with a couple of different secretaries, still as chief of staff. And then today I work for Governor John Bell Edwards, who is the greatest boss I've ever had, I think. And I have the greatest job I have because I've been able to impact lives all over the state for generations to come with this work. And I think it is the quintessential bipartisan issue. People don't care who the governor is when their road is not working or the bridge is out or when the port isn't creating jobs or when the train isn't up on time. They just want that service. And my job as secretary is to do that. And I think that's how I got here. I'm not an engineer. My background is planning and public administration and public policy, which is about strategic planning. It's about leadership. It's about thought. It's about the public and it's doing it in a public service way. And so I've loved this opportunity and I've had the best job ever. Uh, And I don't know if I would change it for anything. And I'm probably going to stay in this profession for the rest of my life, unfortunately. (laughs) I won't get a chance to explore and do anything else because I'm going to stay in the transportation space. Well, the transportation space is grateful for that. As someone who may not have the perspective of a researcher or even an engineer, what do you think we, the Transportation Research Board, could do more in terms of research on transportation resilience? So one, I'm amazed at how much research and work and how broad the the spectrum is for TRB. 
but specifically with regards to resilience, I think it's one of these issues that we have to be real practical with, that we have to put it in the hands of decision makers, as well as academics, folks who are going to understand the breadth and depth of what we're doing and the implications of what they can do and their opportunities. And I think TRB has moved in that direction in terms of how we communicate. I think we are institutionally set up to engage academics, practitioners, and transportation professionals, so say experts in this discussion. Our job now collectively is to take the nuggets of knowledge that we've been able to produce in this document and all of the other research and export it to transportation agencies, public works departments for cities, community activist groups, so that they understand and we can empower them with the framework that's necessary to help advocate for those types of decisions to happen nationally. And so how do we export this knowledge out to everyday users. That's the challenge, I think, that lies ahead for all of us at TRB, uh, as well as those in the transportation space, is educating our constituency. And the document that we've prepared, uh, the information that's available on just about any topic there is, is endless. And so we've got to figure out how not to overwhelm people with information that's just going to be on a shelf. Let's put it in their hands and put it all to work. Dr. Sean Wilson, we thank you so much for your time today. We know you're really busy, but is there anything else that you want to leave us thinking about? The only thing I will, I will leave you with, I think, is it's incumbent upon all of us to do whatever we do safely. And I think the numbers in the transportation space uh, as it relates to safety have not been able to penetrate. And whether it's with resilience and the number of lives that have been lost, the vast majority of those lost lives were preventable. And um, as a public servant, I'd much rather make sure that you're safe, even if you disagree with positions or policies or approaches. Our first goal is about safety. And I never miss a moment to encourage folks, wherever you are in your space, to advocate for a safe environment for folks to achieve whatever it is they can achieve. No different than the research we've done today and talked about. We've got a world to protect. And this is one way that we're doing it. And we just would encourage everyone to uh, take that philosophical approach as an underpinning to everything that they do as well. TRB's Transportation Explorers is a production of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Ben Brown composed our theme music. The podcast is produced by Paul Mackey and me, Elaine Farrell, and edited by me. Thanks again for tuning into TRB's Transportation Explorers. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. See you next time on the transportation journey.